Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you are listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. In this specific episode, my guest is Kier Gregg, who is the director of the Department of Design. That is an interior design agency based in Canberra. Kier and I touch on many things in this conversation, but specifically we cover what her average day looks like, how she got into her career and why she found out that it was the one for her, what kind of people get attracted to being interior designers, and what the difference is between interior design, interior architecture, and styling. So, if you're interested in any of those things, now perhaps you might be working in the industry or aspiring to work in it, or actually even thinking of a career change in that direction, then this is the podcast for you. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this entire podcast possible, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kia Gregg from the Department of Design. morning how are you going very well thank you thanks for having me yeah, it's a pleasure can i just check how do i pronounce your name properly uh well it's kia okay. in australian um in welsh it's kia which, which is oh, the way my mum says it's supposed to be said but nobody ever gets that right so all oh, right i was kia. reading it with a slight kind of polish thing and i also read it as kia because you would literally read it like that in polish yeah but i thought i'm probably really messing this up no you've got it perfect down oh, there you go. <laughs> i'll just use the polish version from now on that's that's, that's just great Usually what happens is I start all these conversations and say, you know, are you from Canberra? What's your background, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But for the fun of it, and probably because I've got a slight bias here because I'm actually very interested in your world, and I made the joke that if I had my life over again, I dare say I would have gone into orders that you do. But can you tell me perhaps about what a day in your life looks like? Maybe not this one, <laughs> but a day in your life, a working day in your life, because I think that might actually set the tone of what we're going to be talking about. And then we can work backwards and kind of get to yeah. figure out how you made it to this particular day. Sure. Um, look, it really varies day to day. Um, I guess being a creative, but also being a business owner, that there are very much two composing, opposing sides to that. Um you know, that there might be a day where um, I get up at five, start my drawings <laughs> for a presentation that day, get the kids up at seven, off to school. Um, by the time I sit down at my desk, there's probably 30 or 40 emails ready for me to review. So I typically set myself half an hour, 40 minutes to, to do some of those or at least tag them to address later. Um, we try and not start any presentation meetings until 10 o'clock um, just to give ourselves a little bit of time to breathe in the morning. But then it might be... Um, a concept presentation to a client, a rep coming in to uh, present the latest products so that we stay up to date with things. Um, and and it kind of goes through from there. Yesterday I was in six meetings back to back, didn't finish until 8.30. So yep. it really kind of varies. But in between meetings, it's um, concepting, putting colours together, um, space planning, drawing, um, mainly on the computer these uh-huh. days. Um Yeah, really kind of getting out and about and actually kind of getting inspiration from things, going and not personal shopping, but going out to showrooms and things so that we can identify the products that we want to use and things like that. Getting home, feeding the kids, (laughs) 
and starting all over again. <laughs> starting all over again. <laughs> well, actually, within that, uh, it seems to me that there's obviously most certainly a creative component to it, especially the fun stuff of looking at products and, and meeting with clients and talking shop, perhaps with your creative team. For those meetings, say, for example, the six you have back to back, how much of that is kind of the dry business stuff and how much of that roughly is the creative fun stuff? Um, look, I mean, again, it varies day to day, but I, I reckon probably the, the big meetings are all creative. So they're presentations to clients. Um, they can go anywhere from half an hour to, you know, four hours. Um, and that's pretty draining. So by the yeah. time you come out of a four hour meeting, um, you're a bit brain dead. Um, so you want to sit down and do some colors or something that's actually kind of inspiring you. Um, and re-energizing you. Um, but I'd probably say, you know, typically from a business management perspective, it should be more 50-50 for me. And my business partner, Louise, um, you know, we both work um, concurrently on on managing the business and managing the staff um, with that. So I spend a lot of my day also kind of helping the rest of the team and, and reviewing drawings and, and kind of working through details and stuff with them. So it should be 50-50, but it, it, you know, depending on how busy we are, sometimes the business stuff gets kind of yeah. left till nighttime and then daytime is all of the, the creative stuff. So yeah. about more 80% during the day. And I, I'm presuming, I mean, tell me if this is right, a little bit like in marketing where, you know, the exciting stuff is, well, at least for me, the creative aspect. Once you've got the strategy down, you have all your data, everything yeah. else aligned, then you kind of have the brainstorming and then you put the lens on it from a creative perspective to see how that would then communicate to an audience. Yeah. That's the stuff that I really like. Is that the same with you that you kind of live for the creative bit? And it's not that I'm saying you don't like yeah. the business stuff. Yeah. It's a necessity. And I, I think it kind of sounds like from even your face expressions here and everything else, you enjoy that. And even though it's draining, it's still exciting because it's yeah. your clients and you're delivering this stuff. Absolutely. But do you live for that? For that it's a real part? adrenaline rush, really. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that that's one of the things that I think everybody in our team gets something out of is is investing so much time and energy, you know, creating something and then seeing somebody's emotion and response uh, to, to their interaction with that space is always, you know, worth it. Um, but coming back to your question, I guess it's um, it's really enjoyable creating. We probably start with the creativity to start with, which then leads us into the technical. So right. we have to come up with a space plan. We have to come up with an idea um, and a direction in order to put the technicality into it. So, you know, we have a really some would say invasive um, meeting as our first initial meeting with clients where we fire off a whole heap of questions to them, which is getting to know them and getting in their brain and asking them whether they wash the dishes left to right or right to left or, you know, do they <laughs> fold their socks or hang their undies or whatever it might be, you know, because those important pieces of information, important to us, might seem superfluous to others, um, really allow us to understand how people are going to interact in a space. Now, that's residentially, obviously commercially is a very different approach um, but in all, you get all of those kind of facts and then it's a matter of creating an idea and then filling in the gaps you know from there yeah, so right. then applying product and appliances there's no point in selecting those first if they don't fit um, you know with the space that you create and once you've created it you know what will fit into that puzzle. 
Yeah, that's great. That yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. I, I often speak about music references, and it's a bit like the first notion of writing a song, the basic chord structure, melody, lyrics, whatever it is that you want to start off with, is the really exciting bit. Yeah. Then there's a whole bit in the middle that's called production, which is you know aligning everything, making sure that it really comes to life. Which is not as exciting, well, at least from my perspective, <laughs> because it's it's the cumbersome bit. And I'm saying yeah. it's still enjoyable, but really, if I could just jump right to the end then yeah. and have the final product, which is the huge highlight, you kind of live for that first adrenaline rush and then the end product, which you go, ta-da, what do you think, you know? Is it kind of similar here that you've got yeah, the look, first the, rush? Typically in, in design, there are, you know, in larger firms, um, they'll actually have concept designers and documentation designers. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably sit 50-50 in that. I love my concepting, but I'm also a bit of a nerd, so I really like um, the detail and the construction methodology and the technical drawing side of things as well. Some designers don't even do that um, in, in larger firms and things. Um, so they're two very different um I guess, talents. Um, I really love creating, but then I really love kind of looking at the finite detail of how something's going to go together as well. So if that being the case, is what makes a good professional in your industry actually having a balance of both of those? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And is that is that taught? Does that come out of experience? Um, look, I think a lot of it comes with experience. Mm. I think um, there's only so much creativity a person can be taught they can be taught um the ways to approach it and um the provide the different tools in order to you know to learn um but to truly be creative some people i know it sounds you know kind of cliche but some people just aren't creative um you know so there is an element that can't be taught um but then certainly from a technical perspective and everything, that's that's very much what um, more so the CIT and the, and the TAFE-based courses are about is that technicality and the codes and things like that. Uni, obviously, with all uni degrees, is that kind of higher thinking and, and alternative um, methodology as well. So having that balance of both, um, you know, works really well. And do you think in your business, the people that end up working in it are those who genuinely actually want to work in it. And what I mean by that is there are professions which people fall into. And because, you know, their career takes them that way or they perhaps haven't seen an opportunity before one comes to to mind and, you know, that they take it on and realise it's actually been their calling all along. Do, Do you find that people who want to be in your field kind of almost set a straight road to it. They just know that's what it is. Or do you find people find their way through different channels? I think there's a real mix. And certainly over, you know, the the last 10, 15 years with, you know, the internet and shows like The Block, um, and (laughs) I guess I cringe, um, (laughs) you know, have, have really kind of opened people's eyes to, you know, something that, that, that seems very glamorous. Um, yes, there is some fantastic glamorous things that we get to do and mm. lots of functions and things um, that are often don't show the dirty side. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had plenty of, of staff that have come from previous careers, you know, as um, 
you know, working in finance or in superannuation that right. got halfway through their working lives and then decided that they wanted um, a change. And then the other half have known since, you know, the middle of high school that that's what they wanted to do and, right. you know, have always been artistic and and kind of have, have very much always focused on that being their direction. So, you know, it is one of those industries that there are a lot of transferable skills once you then add on the technical ability and things like that. Um, but more and more I'm seeing people actually change careers, you know, midlife. Right. So it's not too late for me then? It's not too late. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I start brushing up. On, Come and do not, your internship in the office. <laughs> yeah, I stop watching the blog though because <laughs> it gives you a strange face expression. No. Um, actually, just for the benefit of those who are listening, let's take people through the kind of roles that are in your business. Now, I know we're talking about interior design mm-hmm. or interior architecture. It actually might be worth defining if there's a difference between that or is that just a terminology difference? Um, look, from, from some perspectives, there can be. Uh-huh. Um, for instance, in our office, I have an advanced diploma of interior design, a diploma of interior decoration, and then a a degree in environmental science in interior design. Right. Whereas um, Louise, my business partner, has a degree from Melbourne that was in interior architecture. So um, technically they're still the same. Um, Where things are often um, confused is the difference between interior decoration and styling versus interior design. So interior design and interior architecture are very much more the same where it's quite technical. You know, we can walk into a fabric of a building designed by an architect or building designer. Just to be clear, we mean the basis. So walls, floors. The the outside structure. Correct. But but nothing beyond that box. Correct. So as long as it's, you know, even to a certain degree, um, we can work internally with structure, um, you know, we can relocate walls and things like that because we we bring in the experts, structural engineers or the different teams that we need to identify and, and specify the correct methodology for that. Um, but say in an office fit out, you walk into an empty tenancy, we create the space plan, the detail for all of those walls, you know, plasterboard and studs and um, acoustic ratings and air grills and things like that obviously in conjunction with whatever consultants we need for that project. Um, But it's not just fluff and stuff as we, you know, kind of often get, um, you know, thought of um, as. We we are very much an an interior architect. Uh, Joinery documentation, it's not just picking the colours, it's then actually designing you know, the elevations and the methodology of how things go together uh, and understanding all of that's um, as much the job as making it beautiful. Yeah. So do you think that the confusion between decor and design for an interior is something that's actually quite common? Because yeah. you mentioned the the notion of the um, for block. Let's just go back mm-hmm. for a moment. What we're seeing on the block is a mixture of the two, but I guess that's what's confusing people a little bit, right? Correct. So what you see, you know, often is that they'll bring in an architect that's done up the plans. They're nominating where the walls go. Um, They've actually got, you know, Freedom or whoever it is building their kitchens and designing their kitchens. Uh, They're coming in and choosing the colours and finishes So and then styling it. So from a block perspective, it's more an interior decoration with an and, you know, a little bit of that colours of an interior designer perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's it's certainly 
swayed more one way we won't need an architect to do the interior layout. And in terms of your work, uh, and maybe I'm showing my ignorance here, but I tend to kind of think that anyone working in interior design or interior architecture has that title, and mm. perhaps you could uh, put a seniority on it. Do the titles change? You know, do you start off as something and then to progress? And, and is there a different title for someone that has high responsibilities? And Absolutely. Yeah, that. so I guess when, when you um, start out, you're typically either, you know, hopefully chosen to do an internship while you're studying, um, which is something that we always um, suggest is a really good idea. Get your foot in the door before you actually graduate. Certainly helps with your studies as well. Um, But then uh, you come in as a graduate interior designer. Um, That might be 12, 18 months of placement. Then you're an interior designer for, you know, a pretty decent length of time. And that's a, you know, fairly broad... um, title really so anybody once they've graduated in fact tip technically you don't have to have had a qualification to call yourself an interior designer um we're not a governed body say That's like architecture this was going on my linkedin account <laughs> um but and then you know as as you grow in seniority and and um your wealth of knowledge can be promoted to a senior interior designer. In larger firms, it then goes on to associates um, and then, you know, whether whether your company is open to partnerships and things like that. It becomes that. more like an agency model. Absolutely. Like Same like with lawyers and yeah, that's agencies, right. advertising agencies. So, But there's, there's nothing to say that someone that just has an interior designer label is, isn't as capable um, you know, of, of providing their job and things. So, you know, that's why we'll often actually just have one blanket price, for instance, because um, it doesn't matter who works on the job. It's a collaborative exercise uh, and everybody kind of touches, you know, the, the pie. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's there's nothing taking away from, you know, just being labelled as a as an interior designer. And I promise this is the last thing about the block, but it's actually become a nice way of exemplifying mm-hmm. a few things. The experts on the block, so not Scotty the builder, but the other three, are they interior designers? Are they... So are, yeah, I don't watch your, a lot, but I believe that Neil is... Um, an editor. So he's coming from a different perspective. He's he's coming from uh, like a critic would say, for example, in yeah. terms of food. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. And and certainly, you know, as you'd see in their judging a lot of the time, it's about the emotion and the aesthetic of, of the room. Yeah. And the plus they've got to talk in a way that the audience understands. And yeah. yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think that's something to touch on later as well is is reading your client and, and the language that you use. Um, yeah, so... Neil, um, I think Shana and Darren are both interior designers. Right. Um, and then there's, are they the, the other two? No, that's the other two. Okay. <laughs> Darren, um, we have supported at a couple of event, events down here in Canberra over the years. Um, he's He's got his own practice. Shana also has her own practice. Mm. Um, and they, they do exactly the same as us. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. So I think that really makes it quite clear where we're yeah. sitting with it. All right. What I wanted to ask around this whole conversation about what is it you do during a day, how much of it's creative and all the rest of that, is because I want to say if you kind of went backwards in time, mm-hmm. sometime earlier, where you started forming the idea that this is what you want to do. Mm. If you knew what you knew then, now, or however you do that comparison, mm-hmm. is it what you were thinking it was going to be or were you surprised by what it became? Look, it's not what I was expecting it to be. Um 
in terms of actually being an interior designer. But there's nothing else I would choose to do now. If I was given my time again, it would be exactly the same. I guess you don't know what you don't know. And Mm. yes, you can read magazines and talk to people who are experienced. And part of this podcast is exactly that. I'm trying to kind of get this view of a world that many of us aren't in. But I guess what you're saying is you couldn't have predicted it, not to the level that that obviously you know it now, but it's also not that bad thing. Well, that's right. You know, during school, I always thought, you know, I studied tourism for hospitality, um, Japanese. I thought I was going to, you know, go and manage a hotel in the Bahamas or something Um, or be a fashion designer. So when I was living in um, London, the girls at work would laugh because I am now the most fashion tragic person on the face of the (laughs) earth and I despise shopping. Um, But Life priorities have changed. (laughs) That's right. Um, I, you know, actually got accepted into interior design based on my fashion portfolio. Um, So that was my other major at school. So um, when did my gap year um, and the, my, my girlfriend that I was at school with over there was applying to um, fashion school in Sydney. So, you know, she kind of, you know, she and I were both ready to do this when we came home and she got accepted and started straight away. And then I had a year and my mum was um, general manager of a real estate agency at the time. So I worked in reception down there and uh, started seeing all these sample boards coming in and, you know, working with plans and all of the different stuff that was coming up on the market. And then the CEO's wife um, was studying interior design at the time. And so she'd come in and tell me, you know, what she was doing and show me her assignments. And by the end of that year, I was like, yeah, this is, I'm going to go for this. And uh, that was 21 years ago now. Yeah. So, And you've never looked back. <laughs> no, never looked back. It's a good thing you didn't go into fashion. Otherwise, by now you would have been like, why am I in this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, you know, I, I guess I always take everything I do, you know, and make it a passion of mine. Um, and I loved that. And I guess it, had I embraced that, it would, you know, I probably would have turned around and said, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't look back. Um, but having now done this for as long as I have, um, there is absolutely nothing else I would do. My question before about whether you need people within this industry to be like completely focused on that and that's where they're coming from. And I love the fact that you said, actually, no, there are people who have changed mid-careers and used whatever skills and insight they have from those careers, molded them with, I guess, experience in interior design and, and yeah. kind of entered the profession. But it also sounds like even with the degrees that you've done, there is there is a lot of different influences in there. I'm presuming the scientific end is probably for things to do with sustainability and so forth. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. Okay. So it seems like you've got a lot of different interests and you've just pulled them together and said, actually, yes. I, like You could see the calling when you started seeing those sample boards and the plans and stuff and you follow that. But yeah. once again, in other words, what I'm trying to say is even though you don't want to be doing anything else, I bet that if for some reason interior design was made illegal tomorrow <laughs> – then you would find other work because it sounds yeah. like you have other abilities that that you could definitely rely on. Yeah, that's right. And I th- I think that's one of the things that that makes an interior designer a better designer is is understanding and having abilities in other worlds mm. as well because the more you understand about people and the more you understand about the worlds that they operate in um the better you can deliver a solution for them. So, you know, the psychology of that um, and behind that is really important. Um, so, I, you know, I would happily go into something else knowing that I'm going to learn, you know, a huge amount. Um, but 
would it make me as happy? I guess I don't yeah, know. Yeah. 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 Well, you're, well, you're happy now, so that's all that matters. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things, too. I can see a, um, uh, a parallel to a conversation I was having with uh, Yanni F. Kapidis about mm-hmm. his Molongo group developments. And one of the points that he made relatively early on in that podcast was that the thing that works for him is understanding how human beings interact or engage with the space, and then everything else happens out of that. Yeah. So he's obviously looking at the human element, and he does employ like philosophy and psychology within it as well to to make sure that his spaces are a little bit yeah, different and engaging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people really like the work that Malongo do as a result of the fact that they are quite distinctive mm. and, and trying to set a particular benchmark and. Uh, Leave a legacy. That was a really big thing for them. Mm. But anyway, the, the reason that I'm, I'm saying that is uh, it, it would seem to me that, that in order to be a good interior designer or interior architect, you have to have a good understanding of us as human beings because ultimately it's about human beings being in those spaces and you start off with that principle. So I can see that, that alignment. That. I think that's the bit that they take granted a lot of the time when a space just, just presents beautifully. You don't see the blood, sweat and tears behind that, but also it feels good and people just accept that it feels good. But behind the scene, why does it feel good? You know, is it the balance? Is it the symmetry? Is it the, um, you know, the colours and the finishes that provide the emotion that make it feel good? You'll always walk into a space and, you know, if it's done badly, you can say, I don't feel right in this space, but actually identifying what it is that's wrong Mm. would be particularly difficult to articulate. Um, so it's so important to, to understand how and why and the function, um, and all of those things before you, you know, you really are able to deliver a successful space. Yeah. Just on that, um, the perception of spaces and how we feel in them, is there a conflict or in other words, I know there is one, I'm just wondering how we solve this Mm -hmm. in order to make a space, uh, pleasant, or functional, or probably both, to a group of people, you need to understand them and what it is that they like. Mm-hmm. However, you have your own view, your own biases in many ways, also born out of experience, trends, and a knowledge of the industry. How do you bridge those two? Because in other words, if you just appease by what people want, mm-hmm. it's likely to just be a cookie-cutter approach of things that they've already experienced because mm. it's hardly – well, they probably won't know what they don't know about what potentially could be. Yeah. So there won't, there won't be evolution in that. If you push too hard on your side, then it becomes your space and your taste rather than perhaps the broader community. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like the fashion thing we just spoke about. There is the fashion that we all feel comfortable with because it's already in fashion, but hardly any of us are going to be wearing stuff that's the pre-fashion because we want to set trends because mm. we feel a bit out of sorts, you know, Yeah. unless you work in the industry and then you're trying to showcase that you are the innovator and you're ahead of the trend. So with that, how do you bridge that so that you're guiding clients towards a solution that says take a couple of steps yep. beyond the norm and trust me, with time, you will love yep. it? Look, it's, it's, it's a difficult one and, again, it's very client-dependent, um, project-dependent. Um, a lot of it would come from the amount of uh, research that we do and constant, you know, reading blogs and and magazines and Pinterest until three o'clock in the morning and um, 
but also life experience. Um, you know, I was very fortunate as a kid to have visited 28 countries by the time I was 11, um, being an army brat. So all of the things that I saw, I think, has made me a better designer because I've been able to draw on lots of different experiences. Um, bridging that gap, it can you have to be able to read the room effectively in terms of identifying the clients that will be pushed and will allow a design to go that innovation route and be the front runner. Um, and so much of that, you know, in terms of us directing the design would be us doing our research and ensuring that, you know, what what are the latest trends and things. Um, but if comf- if a client's not comfortable in, in moving in that direction, you've got to be able to read that, you know, mm. the cookie cutter approach is, is probably, you know, more them. From a business perspective, we as, as our firm um, always kind of sell it that, we're facilitators of their hopes and dreams. And yes, we will challenge um, some of their questions or their ideas, I should say, um, if we think they need to um, or if something's not going to work. Obviously, we're not going to, you know, allow people to spend money on things that just aren't going to work. But it's, um, it's not our design. We don't live in that space or so, we don't so interact with that space. it's more about them than it is about Absolutely. You. But it's just, yeah. you know, understanding each of the projects and it will change from project to project. And that's one thing that they don't teach you um, when you're studying. Um, and they always push you, I guess, you know, as they should to to come up with something really, you know, out of the box um, with no budget. And, you know, it's okay if you don't have doors to that room because, you know, we're thinking high level. Um, but the reality is you, you've got to make it work for the people engaging in that space. Um, whether it, you know, for a restaurant, it's it's got to hit the demographic that, you know, that they want to, to appeal to. Um, or, you know, in a house, Putting, putting the cutlery drawer in the right spot is so important so that, you know, they don't, every time they have to walk <laughs> three miles across the kitchen to, to put the cutlery away from the dishwasher, they're not carrying on, you know, uh, like a pork chop. So, yeah. yeah. So have you ever had that kind of unfortunate experience where against your best judgment, so to speak, you had to deliver something for a client. Absolutely. Yeah. I have designed some things I would never put my name to personally, um, but the clients love them. Yeah, And, of course, you know, yeah. they they have gotten everything that they want, whether it's once did a, a fluorescent green splashback in a kitchen um, and they loved it. Um, hey, I did a home story on... Um Lucy Sugarman just recently, and she's living in this older place in, where is it, in O'Connor? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's got this lino green, lime green, and pink kitchen, presumably from late 70s, early yep. 80s, still there. And, you know, I put that up on an Instagram, and the amount of people that absolutely loved Love it, it, just That's because right. it's so different. Now, of course, if you were to ask them, would you like that in your bathroom or in your kitchen, they'd probably say no, or vast majority would not. But there is an attraction to things that are very either retro, very distinctive. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, if somebody really just wants that, they would probably love it 100%. And who are we 
or you specifically to talk them out of out of that if they're going to be very happy with it. And, and, and it's a matter of, of working around what it is that they, they want and ensuring that it still comes together as a cohesive um, final product as yeah. well. So that's where our job then comes in to be even more um, important is that they're getting what they want but somebody else isn't going to come in and go, well, that's gross. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully they never do that. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it's – it's there's always a challenge in terms of ensuring that you know it's it's not just one specific person yeah. um but that um it all works and comes together so then the flip side of that question is this i would imagine it being a creative industry uh, specifically your business you'd want to have a signature element so to speak or a signature approach or something that when you look at your portfolio of clients and the things that you've done I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. that people would go, oh, yeah, this must be your work. Just always, Does that not matter? The reason that I ask is if I think of a lot of different creative industries, there is definitely a value in a creative approach that's almost patented, so to speak, by mm. that agency or by that particular individual for the things that they do. And it's important. So they push with that or they put their bit of themselves on top of any kind of work so it all kind of blends together in a way that's recognisable as being that person's work, even though they're doing it for different people. Yeah. Uh, How important is that to to, to you? Um, There are some firms that that's very much the direction that they take and that's why they've done very well and why people choose to go to them. We've actually chosen as our company to take the opposite approach um, so that we are constantly um, delivering a different product. Yes, you know, you'll see in our portfolio that there are certain periods where we're inspired by something and, you know, it might kind of, or it's the best solution for a space. Um, We actually try pretty hard not to recycle um, or repeat the same look twice. Now, obviously, there are clients that come to us and say, I really love that kitchen that you did, or I particularly want this as a splashback. And you're like, the green oh, one? I've done, I've done, you know, um, five black kitchens in the last year and somebody else comes in and, you know, says they want a black kitchen and you kind of roll your eyes and say, yeah, no worries. You, you know, you might delicately sort of say, well, this is, you know, a new colour and it's still in a dark tone or something. And but if you see there's a resistance there, then it's pull back, change tact, mm-hmm. think on your feet and and come up with, you know, something. So we as a company don't um, pigeonhole ourselves into a particular style and or a particular thing. that's successful. So you don't have mm. to put your own brand, so to speak, on everybody's work. Okay. And interestingly, um, the conversation that I had with the architect, um, Terry Ring was, mm. he said the same thing that he believes that all of his works are actually very different. And that was one of his points of difference. Rather than working of a principle of saying, I build these kind of places. And if mm. this is the kind of thing you want with some customizability, then come to me. It's a different approach. And the reason that I ask this question too, and it's good to know that both coexist equally mm. well. I was wondering if students that are in, in interior design and working on portfolios and perhaps looking mm-hmm. to get internship and so forth, whether your advice to them would be, as opposed to trying to figure out what your style is, probably figure out that you're very flexible mm. in terms of being able to work with different briefs, different clients, get into their heads, deliver stuff that's completely different. Because I guess once you've got that ability, if you later want to 
put a kind of signature component where you can, but if you do it the other way around, you'll sell yourself, yourself short a little bit. Yeah, sell yourself short and pigeonhole yourself. Now, you know, as you say, it's great to be able to move your career through a series of stages and if that's where you choose to end up being that's great and a lot of people have done you know exceedingly well on that basis but I think starting out as you said working with that flexibility and showing that you've got diversity in your ability um, from an employer's perspective is much more um, enticing yeah interesting uh, side note here in my own music productions that I do as a professional hobby more than anything else i've always wanted to have a signature sound in other words mm. i wanted my songs or my albums to kind of sound like ashley's work under the whole magnifique mm-hmm. title but it just doesn't work out that way i don't know why that is yeah. but every time i write stuff and produce it it all sounds a little bit different to me and mm. at first i found that really frustrating that i couldn't quite land the me sound that has mm-hmm. the signature element attached to it but now that i think about it I'm actually rather comfortable with the fact that it's a little bit different, Yeah. mainly because people's uh, listening habits have changed quite a fair bit over the last couple of decades where rather than listening to full albums, a lot of the audiences these days pick individual singles from artists, put them into playlists, and that's how they listen to music. So if all my stuff had a very particular signature sound, um, that would mean that I'd lose out on all those people who don't particularly like that sound. And mm. if I have variants, then more people are likely to enjoy separate songs in different occasions and different genres and what have you. So in many ways, that's ended up being, well, not an advantage as such, but just a different position that I'm comfortable with now. Yeah. Um, but it's funny when, you know, like you said, you set yourself on a particular area and then you think you failed at it, but actually that can be an advantage. And, you know, hearing what you're saying about your business, being able to look at clients, really deliver things that's bespoke to them without you having to enforce a kind of a signature component on top of that is the advantage that you have. Yeah, and I think, you know, fr- from my business perspective in terms of the way that we've we've structured it is I'm not the only designer in, in the team. You know, there are, there are seven of us um, that come together collectively and we assign a designer to each project based on, um, you know, their suitability to the client or to the space or what we know that they're inspired by. And, you know, so each of the styles that come out of our studio have a diversity by the nature of the fact that other people, you know, multiple people are designing it. Um, but I think as a as an individual designer, you're always going to be inspired by different things. And as a creative person, that just means, well, to me, that that inspires different forms and different elements and you can get pretty bored with the same sounds all the time um you know i i live in a white house purely for the fact that if you asked me what my favorite color was it would change on a weekly basis and that would be a very expensive painting job um you know the, my art inspires me my um, you know, my girls' artwork when they bring it home from school is, you know, all over the lounge room and things like that. It's the often the things that um, you add to a space that adds its character as well. So not every surface has to be full of punch and, mm. and detail often. So, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it's a matter of actually being comfortable with a white wall, you know. A lot of people aren't. Um, so... I guess that comes from experience and, and maturity as well. Um, I There are many people that would argue that I am also a hoarder. Um, <laughs> I find it very difficult to let go of things. Um, but I have particular spaces that now that that 
um, is concentrated too. So my study is my little kind of cave. Um, there's a huge amount of natural light, but I have bookshelves on all of the walls, floor to ceiling, and I have um, my framed butterflies above my computer screens and um, lots of things all over the place. That's my space of clutter now. Um, but then there are other spaces in the house that then provide that sense of serenity and not having things around, particularly, you know, with what we do, it can be system overload going out. Um, you know, we are those weird people that will turn a chair upside down and to see where it's from and touch a surface. And, you know, you can't help but I'm um, staring at the wall at the moment, identifying the colour of the wall and knowing where the supplier of the foam is. And your brain just doesn't stop absorbing all of these things and um, you know, processing all of that information. So for me now to be able to go home and have a space that's not full of that sound um, is really important for me. Yeah. And it's now it's filled with my plants, you know, it's my happy place and it's a bit of a jungle, but the greenery, you know, for me it's always been about the inside and the outside connecting, um, but now the, the amount of um, COVID indoor plants I have is, is getting a bit crazy. My, my, my kid's kind of like, Mom, do you plant really need another plant? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm presuming you're, you're not using your – you know how there's that expression often said, oh, you know, a fashion designer always has to dress really well, right? And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I'm presuming you're not using your home as an example of best practice of interior design. No. In, in, in fact, like you just mentioned a moment ago, it's your quiet space. And in fact, you live through doing the interior design for other people. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, people often ask us, um, Louise and I always think it's it's quite amusing. You know, we're both um, in the middle of renovating um, ourselves. Um, so there's half things done. We don't have the time to finish it. Um, but we invest so much time and energy um, delivering it for other people that often we either have too many ideas or not enough inspiration when it gets to doing our own I would say stuff. probably not enough time as well. <laughs> yeah, not enough time too. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the hours between three and four in the morning would <laughs> be a really good time. But, um, yeah, it, a builder's house is never finished. Um, a plumber's toilet always leaks. Um, <laughs> you know, we are very much the same. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, Except for Alana's house. You've been to Alana's house. I her been to her Alana's space house. is amazing. Yeah, so. yeah, we should probably make that connection. So Alana Ringham, who I did a home story on actually just recently, uh, works with you. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 And she's been with you for how long now? Uh, she started with us earlier in the year. Yeah, there you go. I've known her for a long time, but yeah. yeah, started with us at the beginning of the yeah. year. Yeah. In fact, I remember talking to her when she, she came over once because she's best friends with, with Emily. Uh, and, you know, she use the term interior architect mm -hmm. as the first time that I heard that. Yep. And when she left, I said, what's this thing about Alana kind of making some little fancy interior architect? <laughs> and, and I was like, no, no, that's that's what they're called, actually. <laughs> so, but the thing is, I then started looking into that. And the next time I spoke to her, I said, tell me a little bit about that and tell me about the difference between yeah. styling and so on, which I thought was an interesting conversation in itself. Um, I, I actually kind of quite like that, that you live your dreams through the work for other people. Absolutely. You know, I, and, and I often use up, you know, all of my ideas um, on their spaces. Um, 
And I love going into, you know, there are a lot of clients that I still um, have regular contact with and it's more rewarding doing it for somebody else and, and sitting there watching them love being in their space and engaging in their space. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more rewarding for me, I think. You know, it, I would happily live in a 1970s <laughs> caravan and and be happy. Yeah. Um, also probably because I can't actually, I'm funnily quite indecisive. Um, I can't decide what I want for my space. Mm-hmm. So that's why my um, renovations have halted because hey, I can't make a decision for myself. That makes so much sense though. It's like you can't psychoanalyze yourself. There's no. there's it, it, like a doctor can't operate on themselves. Absolutely. In many ways, the same thing. Probably the reason that, you know, you're indecisive and so forth is because you're doing that for other people. And once you start to turning that expertise lens towards yourself, it bounces back off again because you're like, mm. I can't be in a loop. I can 100% be assertive for somebody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> not great at choosing restaurants either, but um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I think you're right. I it's it's very easy to step outside and and look into something and be able to provide guidance to somebody else, um, but to be able to you know to do that for myself, I actually set a we we set a little task at work last year where I got everybody in the office to put their color palette suggestions together for my kitchen renovation because I. I just did, I didn't you want it. You became your own client. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's difficult um, to come up with. We've got so many ideas to actually settle on one as well. Um, I am a Gemini too, so it <laughs> makes it particularly difficult to, to make up my mind for myself. Well, actually, now that you're – it's funny how things connect. Now that I was talking about that music example mm-hmm. for me before – I think one of the reasons why I can't seem to settle on just one genre and one thing very well is because if I think of my music tastes, they're actually very wide. Yeah. And if you said to me, actually pick one to be an expert in, I'd be like, oh, but I love this and I love that and I really love this particular era and this inspiration. And, you know, my music playlists are quite varied. Yeah. They're, they're most certainly there's a, there's a relationship between all of them, which I won't go into now because I'll bore everybody. <laughs> but my point is that, again, actually – the fact that you've got so many things that you really enjoy means that when it comes to trying to choose one for yourself, you just can't. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, Louise and I have have built the business on that basis as well, that um, we both have pretty short attention spans, (laughs) um, but inspiration and and enjoyment in so many different aspects of design, and that's why we've created a multidisciplinary firm, is um, we didn't want to decide to just do government office fit-outs for the rest of our lives. We didn't want to just choose to do um, residential design. We we want to still do hospitality and retail and commercial fit-out and residential, high-end, low-end. You know, there are so many things that we enjoy doing about what we do um, that, that that's the model that we've chosen for hmm. the business. Um, when I was younger, I shared uh, a home with an architect um, for about a year. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that I actually got to know an architect really, really well. Yep. And what I thought architecture was very much about, you know, numbers and engineering, I realized it's actually very much a creative profession, which so we, we really hit it off. It was mm-hmm. lots of fun. Um, I don't have much of a contact with him these days. He's too important, but <laughs> maybe I should reach out to him. Um, but all jokes aside, uh, one thing that stuck with me that I really liked, he, he said to me that despite all his experience and everything else that he's worked on, 
The point between planning a building, an interior, whatever it may be, and then seeing it come to life, he said there is always this magic moment where he says, oh, that's how it turned out. In other words, despite everything that he knows, all his experience and skill, all the people around him, there is never a 100% prediction of what the outcome will be. And I don't mean in terms of what mm. the walls will be, mm. but mm. how it feels, mm. how it ends up looking, what the light looks like once it bounces in. And he says he loves that. He loves the fact that there isn't that 100% certainty because that's for him the magic. Yeah. So it made me think of that when you were talking about rooms before. And I just wanted to ask you that question. I'm presuming that when you work with a client, you get into their heads, you understand what it's going to be. You probably have a very good idea inside your head about what something's going to look like. And it can be relatively well represented these days through different programs and renders and what have you. But how close is it to the thing that you finally actually get to see and step in that room and go, yeah, it's exactly like I thought? Or does that magic happen for you as well? Look, the magic definitely happens. I don't, I don't certainly can't speak for others. I walk into a space and um, or look at a plan, hear the brief, and it's like um, a little cartoon kind of starts creating in my head. And probably often I'd say maybe 80% of the time I've already got that image in my head before I've started anything. Um, but there is certainly still that magic walking into a space and saying, you know, this this has turned out very nearly, um, you know, what I imagine, but there are a few kind of, there's always going to be a challenge along the way that kind of alters that vision. Um, but this, that's also terrifying. Um, it comes with a huge amount of um, anxiety a lot of the time in terms of will it come out the way that I see it in my head? Um, and a lot of that's come from, you know, uh, learning through mistakes, um, of others or of my own, um, and then identifying that to, to change, um, you know, for, for the next project and things like that. Um, there's, you know, we, we try and visit site as often as we can. So we see the, the progress, um, but yeah, there, there's always the magic walking into a space when it's fully furnished um, and all the lights are on. And often when we're presenting it to judges or something like that for the awards and you're just like, yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, that's great. So it sounds like the process of the design and the build and all the rest of that is actually about trying to get as much certainty towards delivering a vision. That's that's really because then, A, you, you don't freak out about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's about minimising those variables and That's it. But we also, I mean, we, yes, there are so many tools in terms of allowing people to visualise. We try and steer away from a lot of those because sometimes it gives people too defined an idea and then when mm. things are different to that, it often sets people up for, yeah. um, you know, not loving the space as much or thinking – you know, the, the image in their head from having seen a picture manifests itself in, in a different direction and then they walk into the space and you don't want them to be disappointed. So we actually, typically, you know, try and um, verbalise the experience and, and the, um, the final creation, building that picture in their head as opposed to physically seeing something. Obviously we show them drawings and inspiration images and, um, you know, the technical drawings, but in terms of rendering um, 
you know, a 3D render for somebody to, to sign off on, we try and avoid that. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's interesting because I guess, well, I mean, this is a little bit different, but, you know, the whole basis of apartment sales is on exceptionally expensive, really glamorous, over-the-top yeah. renders. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you look at that render and it's beautiful skies and there's a bird yeah. on the porch and you know, they've got the most expensive lamp and, and stuff inside yeah. it. And it's it's so perfect that you think it's never actually going to look like it's, it. We, we often mark up the renders for the developments. We work on a lot of developments yeah. and you sit there and go, so this is a $400,000 unit. Why have they got a $70,000 lounge <laughs> yeah. in, the, in, the, in their living space? It's just not going to happen. Of course it looks beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly it has its place. Um, and when it comes to developments, and, and most people aren't visual, um, it, it allows them to see the product that, you know, potentially they how they might be able to live in it. Um, but I think there's also an element of needing to be true to the demographic and um, delivering something that is realistic a lot of the time, um, you know, we'll often, whilst an image might look amazing for a development with pendant lights over the bench, if they're not going to be delivered in the final product, don't show them because yeah. it will give people an expectation that there are pendant lights going to be above the bench. So, um, you know, we, I don't like the thought of um, allowing people to imagine something that's not going to happen, yeah. you know. So yeah. um, it's it's always a bit of a challenge. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess, of course, we have to remember that, you know, selling apartments is, is big business and putting the best possible image forward Absolutely. in order to sell something is, is the way to go. That's, that's just advertising technique. But I, I think maybe with the work that you're talking about, it almost seems like, a, you don't want to set false expectations on, or something that misguides somebody to an understanding mm. of what something might be like. But it almost sounds like it's better to s visually slightly underpromise the end result, describe the rest of it in terms of feeling and, and emotions and what that would look like in this space, and through that then deliver something that is... Yeah, I think certainly on the on the ones that we have personal contact with, you know, and, and, and you know, not taking away from what developments and sales do because they do an amazing mm. job, um, you know, and it keeps us, um, you know, in, in business. But um, certainly one of the ones we have, have contact with, that's, that's the way that we like to evolve through a, yeah. a project. Um, one last question, because I just realised it's almost an hour. This time just flies <laughs> by when you're having fun. Uh, is around trends in fashion uh, through the decades, and I'm sure there's people listening to this who know about fashion and they'll probably disagree with me completely, but the way that I perceive it from, from my, my end. So if you look at chunks of time, the, the definition of particular fashion trends seem to be a little bit more pronounced than they are now. And what I mean by that is if I say 70s, people will think of white collars and those patterns and mm -hmm. bell bottoms and all that kind of stuff and big hair. And then you think of the 80s and you think of wham and et cetera. Like, this is quite yep. easy to do, right? I could keep on going. And the closer we get to ourselves, the less we can see it because we're in it. Mm. Um, but it would seem to me that, that sometime post-2010 or something, it, Trends started to to mix much quicker, so the cycles started repeating over and over very quickly, which means that in the end, you could be wearing 70s fashion and people would just go, 
it's not that they're out of fashion. They're, that's just their vibe. And if you wanted to be an emo, even though that was a chunk of time that that was really big in, you could do that now. And they'll just say, yeah, that's their style. They're, they're an emo. Point being is it, in majority, you can almost be anything right now. And it's not so much that you're out of fashion. It's just your thing. And if, mm. if you feel comfortable with it and you want to present that, so be it. Yeah. In terms of the interior design styles, what's current, is the same thing happening? Are you finding a quicker cycle repetition of trends? Are you finding that rather than some trends going out, they just get thrown into the blender of, of the mix that is whatever you like? Or are you finding that in terms of interior design, there is still more of a segregation? Well, this is now in, now this isn't. Now black tapware isn't in anymore, and now Edison bulbs aren't in, but this stuff is. I'm yeah. <laughs> very minor yep. details there, but <laughs> you get my point. I'm just trying to yep. figure out whether it's cleaner than what is happening in fashion, or is it just as blended now as... That. No, I, I, it, it definitely is blended. And I think that that comes from uh, the exposure to social media and programs like Pinterest and the internet in general. Um, exposure to the world um, has has really expanded and, uh, you know, everybody's um, connection to, to lots of different designs. You know, Australia used to have a very specific design style compared to the rest of the world because we weren't exposed to the influences of Europe or America and, and things like that. Um, but very much, as you say, it, it, there is there is this mashup now. Um, you know, at the moment there's, there's also kind of the calling back to the Art Deco period, um, mm. you know, and, and yes, but I think also the the – development of technology uh, and different product is coming out on the market so much faster um, that trends are, are generated, you know, and, and o- turned over so much faster as well. So I think there are, you know, black tapware is never going to go out of fashion. Yeah, that's a good example, um, yeah. But it's, it's just a matter of the way that it's paired together, you mm-hmm. know, maybe – Five, ten years ago, it was paired with, um, you know, black, white and blonde timber. Now we're moving to a walnut timber. So it's still a timber element. It's just that the warmer tones are starting to come through or, you know, the, and, and just the, the different inspirations um, allow people to, to tailor something to their specific need as opposed to a specific trend. Um, now, do you think that makes it easier, more complicated or, or neither? The reason that I ask is... You know, if, if there's a trend to follow, it's kind of easy because every shop you would go to would stock those kind of things, then influences all around you, therefore it's easy to put together. If there's a lot of different choice and a lot of different trends mushed up together, you have to move between things and, and pick that out to create your own style. Otherwise, well, you see what I'm getting at? So yeah. is it made things easier or more difficult or is it just it well, is what it is? I think it makes it more difficult for the layperson to, to guide their way through that. Um, we as interior designers, I I guess, have the benefit of people educating us on all of that product. But Mm -hmm. then we also have the connections to be able to draw on their knowledge. Um, You know, at the the beginning of the um, 20th century, you would have a catalogue that had five basins, five toilets, you know, six taps. That's what you had to choose from. Um, Heritage colours came in the range of about 20 colours. Now, colours are there are an infinite number of colours that you can choose. That's where it becomes overwhelming for somebody that's not accustomed to where do I start um, to, to making those selections. So, but for us, I guess, yeah, it's it's a lot to take on board um, and and learn about. 
But that's also the really exciting thing for us is, you know, to find all of these dis- different information, um, inspirations. Um, but I guess makes our job even more, more important in terms of being yeah. able to guide somebody through that and, and help you through the hundreds of thousands of products available on the market. And actually, in, in a way, that choice and that mishmash and that blend of all those different things means that you've got a greater amount of ability and skill sets and resources to be able to tailor the thing that an individual or a corporation, depending on who you're working with, uh, needs and wants. Yeah. So in, in many ways, th- that's a lot of noise, but in fact, the upside of it is that it allows you to therefore really create something very bespoke. Mm. And like you were saying, you're about the customer. That's your primary goal which means that you'll be able to do that. It just might take a bit of work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, and I guess that's where the love for the job, you know, sits in with um, sitting on Pinterest and, you know, traipsing through endless number of of, um, websites and blogs and understanding things. When I first started, I used to take a catalogue home from the library every night and read it front to back so that I knew all of those products. And then the reps used to joke that, you know, I should be doing their job because I probably know more about the product than they do. Um, but unless you know your product and, and the things, the tools that you have to work with and, and the pieces of the puzzle, how can you actually finish that puzzle, you know? So, yeah, I think it's important, but um, it's, it's made our job difficult or, or harder, but I kind of get off on that. So yeah, yeah. no, it sounds like it sounds like a very exciting time to be in that. Because mm. um, once again, you're then getting away from a quick cut of thing. You're getting away from just the trend. Yeah. You can do it's stuff. Nice that's to really be eclectic, different. I think, as well. And yeah. you know, that's being able to deliver somebody's personality is not always going to be a straight line. Mm. So, you know, being able to show diversion in a, in a design is, is important. Yeah. And uh, there's many philosophers that have said that human beings are complicated things. So, mm. frankly, the, the homes that are around us that are representing us or the offices that we work in should actually be a little bit complicated too because in a way that reflects who we are. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Look, it's been lovely talking to you. Um, I've gone a little bit over time because, like I said, I, I think my bias for this area is, is, is shown <laughs> through. Um, so thank you for spending the time. I know you've probably got a very, very busy day. I think you said to me this morning they had to get up at 4.30 to finish a project, which is very, very strange for someone like you and me. Yep. We usually get up a little bit later but work very late into the night. Correct. So we're, we're those creative souls. But, um, yes, look, it's, it's been fantastic. You've been very awake. I don't how many coffees you've had but <laughs> I did go down on the refectory and have, have a drink before you definitely so, yeah. did so, so thank you for being so so alert for the fall of this it's been a real pleasure and um, I know you're going to be enjoying the many years to come in this industry as, as things keep on blending and, and evolving even further yeah no thank you very much for having me and yes keep my sprightliness about me for the rest <laughs> of the day hopefully and, and get through it alright thank you thanks So there you have it. That was my conversation with Kier Gregg from the Department of Design. Now, Kier was actually a suggestion from one of the listeners. And therefore, if you have a suggestion for who I should follow up or perhaps a profession I should explore, then please let me know. As you can see, I deliver on it. And as you can probably tell, I really enjoy reaching out to people and getting to know them via this podcast. The best way to get in touch with me is via Instagram at Behind the Bio Podcast, or if you prefer email, then Ashley underscore Farod at Outlook.com. 
hope to hear from you soon. And if not, then I hope to catch you at the next episode of Behind the Bio.